us and how we are supposed to live for him. Amen? If you don't have an outline, please raise your hands nice and high. If you don't have an outline, please raise your hands nice and high, and our sisters will bring one to you. You're good. See, I'm good. Well, I got a new jacket, so... And I already got gum on it. <laughs> my wife's going to kill me. All right. Okay. So if you like my clothes, my wife shops for me. I don't shop for myself, so thank her. If you don't like my clothes, then I don't tell you. All right. So God's good all the time and all the time. God is good. All right. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word, okay? All right. Father, we thank you, Lord, for today and for giving us, once again, the blessing, the honor, and the privilege of coming together in person, to worship you, to pray, seek your face, you speak to our hearts, and to fellowship with one another, Lord. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would touch our hearts, that we would have attentive ears and open hearts to receive the very seed of your word. I decrease that you would increase, empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself that everything that I say and do, every thought that enters my mind would be of you, not of me. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We're still in chapter 1, verses 12 through 24 is today's text. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through 24. If you're there, say amen. We're now in part 2 of our series, From the Heart. Say, From the Heart. Now, as always, you guys know this, right? Before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text which was verses 1 through 11. And I gave you four points from the text. You might remember those points, but the first point was discovery. Say that. Come on, say it loud. Say discovery. And that's in verses 3 through 4a. And there Paul, what he does, he gives attention to the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. And he isn't the God of some comfort or the God of ample comfort. He's the God of what? Say it. All comfort. And you see, it's in our times, and we know this, right? We know this, in our times of suffering that we discover, say discover, something new and deeper about God. The second point was ministry. Say that. Ministry, and that's in verses 4b through, through verse 7. And Paul says that God comforts us so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves, this is what he says, we ourselves have received from God. So we receive comfort, but we also share that comfort, right? It's not just for ourselves. We share that comfort. This comfort that we receive from God isn't simply for our personal relief. Listen, it's given to us that we might be able to help, comfort, bless, or minister to others. And you see, part of the purpose that God has for us in our suffering is it opens doors for ministry. Say ministry. And we become agents of His grace, of His mercy, of His encouragement, of His comfort. Our sufferings are not accidents, but divine appointments by God. Can someone say amen? John Henry Jowett said this, God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Every Christian has a ministry of comforting others. Got it? Discovery ministry, the, the third point was centrality. Say that. Centrality. And that's in verses 8 through 10. And there Paul shared with his readers a hardship that he had suffered in the province of Asia. And he shared this with them, not to get sympathy from them, rather to teach them a lesson that he learned. And that lesson was to, listen now, was to trust, say trust, 
to have confidence, a confidence in God and in God alone. And one of the things, one of the things that suffering does is it causes us to put everything in perspective. It causes us to focus, a focus on God and to put him at the very center, centrality, center of our lives to trust him and not trust ourselves. And the fourth point was community. Say that. Community, and that's in verse 11. And Paul there, I love this, is quick to acknowledge the, the helpful prayers of his fellow Christians. And you see, friends, suffering uh, is sent to us to show us that we're not individuals living all alone in life. Got it? We're not alone in life. Okay, We are members of a family. We are members of a body. That's the body of Christ. And we need each other. I need a witness. We need each other. We need community. You cannot handle, listen, in your suffering, you cannot handle it on your own. You can't. This is why you need the body of Christ, right? You need others to, to come and you need others to lean upon and, and others to hold you up. This now brings us to today's text. The title of my message today is Clearing Things Up. Say that, clearing things up. Now, before we even get into the text, I want to set the stage for today's text and and I want you to follow me here. Paul had changed his travel plans. And you see, he had planned to go to Corinth. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you might remember this from our series in, in 1 Corinthians, Undivided, right? In, in 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians 16, chapter 16, verses 5 through 7, Paul says this, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. And this is what he says. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. If what? Okay, remember that, right? So follow me here. Paul's original plan was to go from Ephesus in Asia Minor where he was to sail to Corinth and meet with the Corinthian believers and fellowship with them, and then go by land up through Athens into Macedonia and visit the churches he had planted, and then go back by land to Corinth a second time, and then he would sail to Judea. He wanted to get to Jerusalem by, by Pentecost. That was Paul's original plan, but things didn't work out that way, so he had to change his plans. Are you with me so far? Now, this doesn't sound like a big deal. Okay, no big deal. Change your plans. But it became a big deal to some of the people, the believers in the Corinthian church. And, and some of them were accusing Paul of deception and carelessness, that he was the kind of person who can't be trusted because he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. And I could, I could hear these believers in Corinth saying things like, where is he? He said he was going to come. Paul said he was going to come. He said he would be here. Well, he's not here. Where is he? And they were mad at Paul. They were upset at Paul. Well, apparently they forgot what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7, where he said, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Lord willing. Say God willing. So here's the lesson. Are you ready? Is be flexible. It's a good lesson. Be, be flexible. Our plans, our plans should be flexible. The one thing we see in Paul's words 
was that he left room, I love this, he left room for God to change his plans. Listen, listen, if you're saved, say amen. God has editing rights to your life. Are you guys with me? Blessed are the flexible, flexible, for they shall not break, right? Uh, that's not in the Bible, but it's a, it's a principle, right? <laughs> okay. So, so make your plans. Go for it. Make your plans. It's, uh, by the way, it's good to make plans. You're a good steward if you make plans. It's good to make, make your plans, but don't forget to include God. And remember, listen now, he has the last word. He has the final say in your plans. If you're saved, say amen. We must always, and I want you to get this, okay? We must always make our plans with a P.S. at the end. Got it? And that P.S. is this, if it is the Lord's will. Deo volente, in Latin, Deo volente, God willing, Lord willing, because it might not be his will. It might not be his will. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, write that down. Some of you know this passage by heart. James 4, 13 through 15, James writes, Now listen, you say, today, tomorrow, we will go this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, James says? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, he says this, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And this is exactly what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, I hope to spend some time with you if, what? Come on now, the Lord permits. Again, the Corinthian believers didn't remember that part. <laughs> they forgot that part back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Okay, they, when I say they, not everyone in the church, but some in the church were just mad at Paul. They were mad that he didn't show up. They were, they were being very critical of him. And, uh, you know, and, and, and by the way, Paul had his share of critics. I mean, if you read about his life and his epistles, he had his share of critics. And they accused him of, of fleshly wisdom and of being careless with the will of God and making plans just to please himself. They were trying to undermine his authority over the church. They were relentless in questioning Paul, okay, questioning everything that he did, questioning his every move, his integrity, say integrity, his integrity was being attacked. And this is what Paul is facing with the Corinthian church. And here in the text, what he does, what Paul does, he defends himself. In other words, what he's doing, he's clearing things up. Are you guys with me? Say that, clearing things up. Two points from the text, if you ready to say yes. Point number one is this, Paul's conscience. Write that down, say that. Paul's conscience. What Paul does here, Paul testifies to the Corinthians that he has a pure conscience. Listen now, pure conscience in his personal life, in his ministry, and the decisions that he has made. And Paul is on the defensive concerning his integrity. Say integrity. So let's look at verse 12. He writes this now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness. In other words, moral purity or with integrity and sincerity. In other words, transparency of character 
that are from God. And I want to stop there. Paul could rejoice. That's what he says where he says, now this is our boast. He's not boasting about himself. In other words, that's another translation for saying rejoicing. Say rejoice. Rejoicing. So Paul could rejoice. He could rejoice that his conscience, listen now, was clear in regards to his dealings with the Corinthian church. And by the way, Paul used the word conscience 23 times in his letters. Our conscience is that inner faculty that that knows with our spirit and approves when we do right, but accuses us when we do wrong. Right? Now, conscience is not the law of God, but it bears witness to that law. You see, conscience is, is, is going to either accuse you or excuse you. Either one. Romans, write this down, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. Romans 2, 15. I'm, I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation. And Paul writes, They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So Paul says, I make my boast, I rejoice, my conscience exonerates me. I have done right from right motives. Got it? So let's read on. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Paul's simplicity and godly sincerity are not the result of following the wisdom of the world, but dependence on the grace of God. Say the grace of God. The message renders it like this. It wasn't by any fancy footwork on our part. It was God who kept us focused on him uncompromised. I love that. Listen, the grace of God allowed Paul to be an open person, not resorting to what he calls worldly or fleshly wisdom. So stay with me here. Paul's like, you know, my conscience is clear. It's clear. Now notice he lets them know that he hasn't hidden anything from them. He's not trying to deceive them. He's a man. Why? Because he's a man of integrity, not duplicity. He's not deceiving them. Verses 13 and 14. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Now I want to stop there. Paul reminds, stay with me now, friends. Paul reminds the Corinthians that his writings, like his ministry, are not dishonest, tricky, or full of hidden meanings. That they didn't have to read between the lines. His writings were clear enough. And he's saying, what you're reading in my letters, what he simply says is, what you're reading in my letters is how it is. It is unblemished truth. This is my heart, Paul's saying. This is my heart. And you see, no matter what Paul's accusers said, Paul stood firm, they stood firm, because he had, listen now, a clear conscience. A clear conscience. So, are you ready for the lesson? Come on, wake up. Are you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Have a clear conscience. Have a clear conscience. Someone say amen to that. Isn't it such a great feeling to have a clear conscience? Right? To be able to look at people in the eye. Uh, There's nothing to hide. There's no hidden agenda in your life. Okay, you know that you're treating them right. It's amazing and awesome when you have a clear conscience. You know what that is? That's living what you believe. That's what it is. Living what you believe, that's when your life matches what you profess. You're the same at home. You're the same at work. 
as you are in the church. That's a life marked by integrity. Say integrity. A person with a clear conscience has integrity. So, so have a clear conscience, friends. As Christians, we should have and live with a clear conscience. Live what you believe. That being said, as Christians, it is a very important thing for each of us as believers to realize that if we are to have influence over people's lives in coming to Christ, bringing them to Christ, we must consistently show them that we are people of integrity. Because that's all you really have, friends. Integrity. My daddy always told me, mijo, integrity is all you have. That's it. You blow that, you blow it. Integrity is all we have. Let's read on. And Paul had integrity. Let's read on. And I hope that, the end of verse 13, and I hope that, verse 14, here we go, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this verse describes a future day of rejoicing over each other in glory. Isn't that cool? In glory. So in that day, the Corinthian believers would appreciate the blessings of having had Paul for their teacher as he would rejoice in having had them for his converts. So he's talking about, hey, when we get to heaven, we're going to rejoice in glory, amen, in the presence of the living God. Verses 15 and 16, if you're still with me, say amen. Verses 15 and 16, because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to bless him twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. So remember, Paul had originally made plans to go to Corinth before, right before going to Macedonia and then come back to Corinth after visiting Macedonia, but it didn't work out. It, didn't, it just didn't work out. Verse 17, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? So, so stay with me here. This is part of the accusations made against Paul that he was a wishy-washy kind of guy. They claimed that he wasn't a strong leader and that he couldn't make up his mind about things. And Paul's change of plans made the Corinthian believers say that he must be a man who says yes but means no and who says no but means yes. Well, David Guzik said this, and I love what he said. He said, it was all right for the Corinthian Christians to be disappointed that Paul did, didn't come and visit them, but they were wrong in trying to blame Paul for the disappointment. They needed to see Paul's heart and God's hand in the circumstance. Got it? Verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, say God is faithful. You need to underline that, circle that. Our message to you is not yes and no. So what Paul is saying here, because sometimes Paul, Paul, what are you saying, right? He's saying, as God is faithful, what's Paul saying? He's saying this here. As God is faithful, so we are faithful in what we said to you. Paul didn't say yes and mean no, or say no and mean yes, as the Corinthian believers accused him of. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him, say in him, it has always been yes. Say yes. Every single thing that the Corinthian believers knew about Christ, 
They had learned from Paul, from Silas, or his name also could be Savannah, and Timothy. And Paul reminds them that the gospel message, listen now, the gospel message, what they had learned about Christ, was absolutely reliable, it was trustworthy, and led to their salvation. And Paul is saying simply this. He's saying, he didn't go, listen, he, we, we didn't go back and forth. He's telling them, we didn't go back and forth saying one thing one day and another thing an, another day. Judge us, Paul saying, judge us by our message, the truth that we preach to you. We preach Christ, who is completely reliable, he's saying, and trustworthy. And Paul's point is this. Why would you receive a message that is reliable and trustworthy, and yet to say that the messengers can't be trusted, that they're unreliable? And Paul's like, hey, guys, this message affects the messenger. The witness and the walk of the minister must go together. And this, listen now, this should have made the Corinthian believers more trusting towards Paul and even Silas and even Timothy. Are you guys with me? So Paul's simply saying, you already believe this message, the truth about Jesus Christ. Our testimony wasn't inconsistent. It wasn't inconsistent. It was very consistent, just like the Christ that we preach is consistent. And Jesus Christ, says Paul, is God's divine yes. Say yes. All the faithfulness revolves around Jesus Christ. Which brings us right in the second point. Point number two is this, the believer's confidence. Say that. The believer's confidence. Now I want you to notice something here. Paul, what he does, he takes their, the Corinthian believers, their eyes off of himself, right? Off of himself and onto Jesus Christ. Got it? Verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of who? Come on, to the glory of, of God. I want to read that again. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Say that. Come on, say it with enthusiasm. Yes. And so through him, the what? Amen is spoken by us to who? The glory of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is the affirmation, the yes, and the fulfillment, the amen, of God's promises. Listen, his promises come from our trust in Jesus Christ, whom we know, trust, and rely on, right? Right? And by the way, some of you guys might know this, but amen, the word amen, say amen, means so let it be. When we say amen, amen it means so let it be, or, or it means yes, or it means True, it also means trustworthy. It was used as a strengthening and confirming statement. So when you and I as believers, when we say amen, it's not just a formality or a ritual, friends. It's an expression of our confidence in God's promises, in God's word. So when we say amen, we're saying so let it be. What we're saying is yes, that's true, that's trustworthy. Got it? Someone you should say amen right there, <laughs> right? Can you say, listen now, church, I'm talking to you. Can you say true, trustworthy, or amen to his love for you? Amen, yes, right? Are you assured of his love for you? 
Can you say amen to his forgiveness? Can you say amen to all of his will for your life? Amen. And the, the question arises in our minds, right? Will there ever be an end to sickness and injustice and prejudice and hatred and racism and famine and war? Will righteousness ever reign over the world? And the answer is yes. Yes, when Jesus comes back a second time and we'll all say amen. Because amen, listen now, is the voice of absolute, personal, unshakable, unreserved faith. Yes, amen. That's Paul's point. Verse 21. Now it is God who makes, or the work he establishes, the God is God who makes or establishes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Now I want to stop there. The ability to persevere that is, to continue in our Christian walk, in our Christian life, friends, is a gift of God. It's a gift from God. We stand firm. Here's a gift. We stand firm in Christ. Not in ourselves, in Christ. That's why we're able to persevere. Got it? Because we stand firm in who? Not ourselves, in Christ. So he says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Then he says this, he what? Anointed us. Right? Okay, circle that word anointed, highlight it, underline it. Say anointed. Now we know that in the Old Testament, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed. Right? They were anointed. They, they rubbed or poured oil upon them. This is now, friends, for what? For service. So when they anointed a king, a priest, or prophet, they poured or, or rubbed oil on them for a specific service. Say service. Don't forget that, right? Now, here in the text, right now in the text, and in 1 John, 1 John are the only two places where the New Testament mentions the anointing of believers. Here in 1 John, the only two places. Paul includes all, say all, believers in this anointing, and so does John. Write this down, 1 John chapter 2. Verses 20 and verse 27. And John writes this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you, say all of you, know the truth. And it says this, verse 27 of 1 John 2. And as for you, speaking to believers, if you're safe, say amen. And as for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. Did you get that? So guess what? All believers, say all believers, have been anointed. Look at your neighbor and say, you're anointed. Okay? Now, now, now let me explain to you. The idea behind anointed is that we are prepared and empowered for service. Kings, priests, and prophets, anointed for what? Service. As believers here in New Testament, the idea behind anointed is that we are prepared and empowered for service. Why? Because the Spirit of God lives in you, empowers you, equips you, prepares you for service. Did you get that? So what's the lesson? Are you ready? Here. Here we go. Serve. Serve. Are you guys with me? Serve. Every Christian, listen now, every single Christian is called, empowered, equipped, anointed to serve. 
Are you guys with me? Every single believer is equipped, anointed, empowered to serve. A Christian without serving is a contradiction. So with that being said, lovingly I want to ask you, are you serving? You've been empowered and equipped to serve God. And boy, do we need help in this church for servants, especially in our children's ministry. With, with the pandemic and all this, people, some have not come back. Some people have moved, have left. We need people to serve. Find a place where you feel you're equipped and gifted to serve. Are you guys with me? You're anointed to serve. Okay, you're not saved to sit, soak, and spoil. You're anointed, you're saved to serve. Can, I say, can someone say amen to that? Verse 22, set his seal, love this, love this, set his seal of ownership, say ownership, on us, on us, excuse me, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I, I love that. If you're safe, say amen. God not, God not only anointed us, but he also sealed us. Isn't that awesome? What does it mean to be sealed? Well, let me tell you what it means to be sealed. Back in the ancient times, a seal was used to prove ownership. It was used to prove ownership. Merchants would put their seal in wax, in wax on cargo to authenticate that they owned it. You guys got it? All right, write this down. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Ephesians 1, 14 says that the seal of the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of His glory. Write this down, Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You get that? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, say sealed, of the day of redemption. So God... God sealing us with His Spirit means that we are His possessions, right? We, we are His possessions. We belong to Him. It's a pledge, our inheritance. He's, He's the guarantee. Not us. He's the guarantee. Think of it as a, I would say, as a, a down payment or an engagement ring of our coming inheritance of our glorified life in the presence of the living God, heaven. So here's the lesson. Are you ready for the lesson? Okay. His presence in us guarantees our eternal security. His presence in us guarantees our eternal security. Listen, friends, he sealed us not with a physical seal with wax, but with his Holy Spirit in our hearts. He lives in us. He owns us. He protects us. He marked us. Therefore, one day we will be with him forever. Our eternity is secure. Yeah? Now, I also want to point something out to you. And I want to point out this, that this is a Trinitarian passage. A Trinitarian passage. The text points out the roles of all three divine persons in salvation. Let's go back to verses 21 and 22. Go back to that. Now, it is... God. Circle that. It's God who makes both 
us and you stand firm in who? Christ. Circle that. Verse 22. Set his seal of ownership on us and put his what? Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. There it is. God, Christ, and Spirit. Trinity. Be God and say got it. Verse 23. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you, and I did not return to Corinth. So what Paul does here, in a sense, he uses a solemn oath to persuade the Corinthian believers of his truthfulness. And he says, in effect, if I'm not telling you the truth, I ask God to take my life. That's pretty much what he's saying. And one of the reasons, friends, Paul hadn't returned to Corinth yet was because he was pretty upset with them. And he would have given them a pretty severe rebuke if he had come. And I think that was wise not to go. And I'll tell you why. You see, it's okay sometimes to let things cool off. And Paul was wise. He let things cool off. There are situations in your life where you want to go off. And you have the right to go off, <laughs> to say something. But listen now, okay? It's wise to let things cool off before you say something. Amen? Verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand from. Now, I love this verse. I love this verse. I'm going to read it again. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. But we work with you for your what? Joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So, so we know that Paul had some pretty tough things to say to the Corinthian believers, and he, and he always, but you know what I love about Paul? He always said it with love. Firm, yes, but with, with love. But the bottom line is this. He's not their Lord. And he makes it clear, I'm not your Lord. He's an authority over them. God put him as authority over the believers. He's an apostle, right? He's someone to pay attention to, but he's saying, I'm not your Lord. Got it? And I want to say this, there is a place of learning to submit to those who are in leadership position. There is. And I want you to write this down, 1 Corinthians, back to chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 15 and 16. And Paul writes this, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, Achaia, excuse me, Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. Then this is what he says, I urge you, brothers, to submit, say submit, to such people, speaking of Stephanus and his family, and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. So there is a place, as believers, there is a place of learning to submit to those who are in leadership, leadership excuse me, position, but those of us, listen now, in a leadership position are not in a place to be dictators or to exercise our leadership position to use and abuse others. Are you guys with me? And unfortunately, there are pastors that abuse their authority. They're tyrants. There's no accountability in their life. And Paul's saying, hey, yeah, I'm your authority. I'm an apostle, but I'm not your Lord. Listen, pastors... 
Speaking of myself here too, pastors have authority, but we are to exercise that authority balanced with affection. See, authority balanced with affection is loving leadership. And unfortunately, you have some folks who just abuse their authority. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 3, I want you to write that down. And Peter writes this, speaking to elders, pastors, bishops. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock. Shepherds, not tyrants. Okay. That is under your care. Watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. You guys get that? As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, not for money, but eager to serve. Did you get that? By the way, authentic leadership is servant leadership. Are you guys with me? And he says this in in 1 Peter, he says, not lording it over those, you get that? Not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And you see, Paul, instead of seeing himself as some kind of lord over the Corinthian believers, he gives a great, awesome description of what ministers should be. What? Fellow workers. Fellow workers. Any Christian leader, listen now, any Christian leader should work alongside their people to increase their joy. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Your joy. And this reminds me that as your pastor, my responsibility is to be your fellow worker. Yeah, God's called me to shepherd you. Yeah, God's called me to be here just about every Sunday to preach to you, but I'm your fellow worker. All right? Yeah, I'm a shepherd, but I'm also a sheep. (laughs) And I hope that as I work alongside of you, that I increase your joy. And that was Paul's heart, that he would increase their joy. Amen? So you see Paul's conscience, it's clear. Hey, I'm making the right decision. I'm doing it what's right according to God's will. And then the believer's confidence. That's our confidence. Right? I mean, we, 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 are, we are sealed, right? We, we're owned by Him. We are fellow workers with everyone, right? So as, as we kind of look at this here, we know that Paul had his share of critics, right? And we all have our share of critics, don't we? I don't know about you. I, I have my share of critics. I do. So, so as, as we wrap this up, I want to show you six ways, okay, six ways to deal with criticism. Are you ready? Just write it down. Are you ready? Here we go. First one is this, expect it. Expect it. Don't be surprised. Ay, Dios mío. You know? Oh, my gosh. Don't be surprised when it happens to you. Jesus was unjustly criticized. So was Paul. So why do you and I, why do we think that we can escape the same treatment? Expect it. Okay? I knew that when we shut down the church, when the pandemic happened, 
I expected critics, and I got them. He doesn't have enough faith. Why is he doing this? Expect it. And you know what? Honestly, I embraced it. Go for it. I'm doing what's best for the congregation, not for you. Amen? But expect it. Second way is this. Wait on God. Say that. Don't phone. Listen, don't phone. Don't text or email your friends or your pastor. Just quiet your heart. Listen now. I want you to get this. Quiet your heart and focus on two things. Okay? I know this is easier said than done, but quiet your heart and focus on two things. First of all, is pray for the critic. Pray for the critic. The second thing is this. Bring glory to God through it. So you pray for the critic, and you bring glory to God through it. You guys got it? So as you wait on God, do that. Pray for the critic, and bring glory to God through it. So expect it. Wait on God. The third thing is evaluate it. Evaluate it. Consider the source, right? I mean, when you're being criticized by somebody, you got to sit back and okay, okay, whatever, you know? Okay, consider the source. Now, I want to say this. Not all criticism is bad. Did you get that? Not all criticism is bad. Even if it's given to us in an unloving way and by an unsympathetic person. A.W. Tozer said this, if the critic is right, he has helped you. If he's wrong, you can help him. Either way, somebody gets helped. (laughs) Expect it, wait on God, evaluate it. Fourth thing is this, confront the person. Don't run around and tell a lot of people, hey, guess what, hey, guess what, hey, guess what. Confront the person. Lovingly confront them and make sure you're prayed up when you confront them and that you're not upset when you confront them. Charles Wendell said this, go directly to the person holding the knife. For until you take the knife away, the backstabbing will only continue. So expect it, wait on God, evaluate it, confront the person. The fifth one is keep quiet. Say that. Sometimes, sometimes the more you try to defend yourself, the more you appear guilty. Go immediately to God. Immediately to God, pray for his vindication, then step out of the way. Right? Be quiet. A pastor once told Warren Wiersbe, never kick a skunk. You might manufacture a worse problem than you started with. Are you guys with me? And lastly, we're going to close with this. So expect it, wait on God, evaluate it, confront the person, keep quiet. Never take revenge. Never, never, never take revenge. And I know that we want to do that, right? The first thing we want to, oh, man, I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to say this. I got some good things to say about it. I want to give them a piece of my mind. No, never take revenge. Why? Because that's God's business. It ain't your business. God will set up the score. God will deal with it. Amen? Let's all stand. Father, we, we thank you for your word and 